Blaze On Demand. This is Ben Weingarten of The Blaze Books, and today I'm joined by a man who needs no introduction, Pat Buchanan, author of the new book, The Greatest Comeback, How Richard Nixon Rose from Defeat to Create the New Majority. Pat, thanks for joining us. Well, thank you, Ben. Delighted to be here. So, first question I have is, Richard Nixon is probably a fairly controversial figure among conservative and libertarian-oriented folks today. And when you joined his operation, I think in the book you characterize yourself as kind of a Goldwater conservative. Uh, Why should conservative, libertarian, Tea Party-oriented folks take an interest in this book? Uh, They should take an interest in the book for the reason that uh, Nixon is an extraordinary figure, an extraordinary politician, and the tactics and strategy he used to bring back a defeated party in 1964 and himself something of a almost ruined politician but failed politician who had given up on politics and said I'm not you're not going to have me to kick around anymore how he pulled the party together and then having pulled it together how he maneuvered through that year of 60, 1968 of assassinations of Robert Kennedy and Martin Luther King of President Johnson standing down of riots, a hundred riots in urban areas on Martin Luther King's death of war in Vietnam, and how in that area era he pulled this party together, which was a minority party at the time, and then how he carved off enough Democrats and independents to win the presidency of the United States. They should read this book about Richard Nixon if they want to know how to win in nineteen. 19- 2014, and if they want to win in 2016, because there are lessons in there for anyone who wants to win. Mm -hmm. And how did Nixon toe that line between, quote-unquote, the establishment, which I think you'd say you'd agree is still very powerful today, and and the conservative movement, which was growing at that time? Good question. Richard Nixon was not part of the establishment. The establishment in those days, Ben, Nelson Rockefeller and Tom Dewey were the apex of it. You had Jacob Javits. You had mainly the governors. They're they're basically liberal to moderate governors in the various states. And Richard Nixon represented sort of the the basic solid Republicans, folks who would come out and vote Republican in Indiana and in the Midwest and the mountain states. And they loved Nixon. They respected him and revered him. He had been Ike's vice president. He was more conservative than Ike. But Richard Nixon was not a Goldwater conservative as I was. Goldwater was an ideological conservative, had fire, energy, and passion. And so when I came with Richard Nixon, he had in 1960 gone up to visit Nelson Rockefeller, and they had the famous pact, or infamous, depending on your point of view, pact of Fifth Avenue, where Rockefeller suggested changes in the platform, and Nixon said, I'll take them. And Nixon phones the platform committee and tells them to put in Rockefeller's changes. And Goldwater says, this is a Munich of the Republican Party. It's a complete sellout. And they despise Rockefeller. So you had the establishment versus the Goldwater wing, and Nixon was in the middle. I mean, his record was an Eisenhower record, but he was in the middle. And so when I joined him, I said, sir, you know, the center of gravity in the Republican Party, it is not up on Fifth Avenue anymore. It's in the South and the West and all these regions where these guys got all the delegates and got Goldwater the nomination and defeated the establishment. If we can marry that energy and fire and those folks to your centrist folks, there's nobody that can beat us. We'd have to beat ourselves. So what you have to look at Nixon not as he was not part of the conservative movement of the the late 50s, 1960s as I was and Barry Goldwater was the leader, Buckley was, National Review was, and 
he was not part, he was not the establishment. The establishment wanted to dump him up from the ticket. Eisenhower ticket in 1980, excuse me, 1980, 1952 and in 1956. So he's a kindred spirit to Tea Partiers in that they're anti-establishment, but ideologically completely on the other side. And Not completely on the other side. He had some, some tendencies that moved toward the Goldwater conservatives. He didn't like the media. And as, as you know, you found out when I worked on those speeches for Agnew, he would go after the media. There was, he bombed Hanoi. He mined Haiphong. Uh, those were not liberal initiatives. Mm-hmm. Now, I have to ask for you personally, you know, one of the things that I thought was particularly profound about his strategy was that Nixon surrounded himself with people that came from all different slices of American society and had all different kinds of ideology, which was very smart politically in mm-hmm. terms of devising a campaign that would work mm-hmm. to get the majority of the country. How did you deal personally with your ideological disagreements with him? It was fairly rough. I mean, uh, the thing that Nix, President Nixon would do was he read all my memoranda, he listened to what I had to say, and in many cases, especially in terms of strategy and tactics politically and initiatives, uh, and if Nixon was going to take a hard line on Vietnam, he'd bring me in to write the Cambodian speech, but if he wanted to talk about peace in our time or a generation of peace. He brings in Ray Price and writes his inaugural. So he moves back and forth, and I knew that. The point is, I, you know, you had to get down to it after he made the decision went against you that, hey, they didn't elect me. They elected him. And so what you do, as long as you get your word in, you, you know, you, you support the policy, you shut up, or you get out. <laughs> now, <clears throat> one of the things that you talk about, and which I think is a particularly insightful line from Nixon was in response to a memo that I believe Alan Greenspan had sent uh, regarding the Great Society and Greenspan's at that time criticism of the Great Society. And, and the line, as uh, quoting from the book here, is, we may have to do what is pragmatic, but we have to talk in terms of principle. Mm-hmm. That's something that I think probably makes Tea Partiers uncomfortable, but it's a fact of life in politics. Talk about that line. Well, it is indeed. Uh, uh, there's... You cannot, I mean, I don't think any individual, certainly I worked for Ronald Reagan, and he once told me, he said, Pat, sometimes I think some of our friends want me to go over the cliff with flags flying. And I said to myself, and sometimes I'm one of them. <laughs> and Ronald Reagan realized that there are certain things, he's in the president of the United States, he's president of the entire country, he has support in the Republican Party of those who disagree with him, he has his own people, and he tried to do as much as he can in as many arenas as he can. I recall one time I was in a meeting, with this again with Reagan, I think it was around 1986, and we were in a fierce argument, we were trying to get the Executive Order 11246 rewritten, which is the Affirmative Action Executive Order, and we had members of the cabinet who were against doing it, and I was for it, and Bennett was for it, and Ed Meese was for it. And we got to the point, and, and Reagan said, I want a decision from all of you. And we said, we don't have a decision. We got a division. So we didn't do anything. So, I mean, and so, and, and Nixon was the same way. He would listen to my arguments when I would say, you know, look, we, gotta, we are for desegregation, but we are not for social engineering. And he would say, okay, I'm for that. And then you get a decision down from the courts, which basically coerced, you know, busing for racial balance. And, you know, you would argue, let's stand up and challenge them. And then others would say, let's not do it. 
and let's go along with what they're deciding, even if we disagree with it. So in those cases, you know, Nixon would talk to everyone and says, look, can, can we win this fight? Is this fight worth making, or should we move forward? There's no doubt on a, on a strategic level that in order to get what he felt was his freedom of action to deal with the Vietnam War and the Soviets and the Chinese and the Egyptians and the Israelis and all the rest of it, that Nixon, in effect, went along with the building of the Great Society, those programs. we Very, very few of them do we go after and kill. Maybe OEO we did. But very few did he go after and kill. And then I, added the EPA and OSHA. Yeah, but yeah, OSHA and well, Cancer Institute as well. You know, but I do tell my conservative friends, you know, look, when I was growing up, you get behind a bus in Washington, D.C., D.C. Transit in your car, and, you know, and that's about it for you. <laughs> that stuff is coming into your face. The medical waste on the beaches, the Cayuga River catches fire. There's, everything is dead in Lake Erie except for some mutant of the carp. And all the, I mean, I, my mom grew up in uh, the Mon Valley of Pennsylvania, and I was going through that area, and down there in Pittsburgh one time, I was all helping audit a, uh, a tannery, and we stopped in Pittsburgh for the night, and you had your white shirt, you got soot all over it walking down the street. And I'll tell you, I'm sure you've never seen them, but there used to be auto graveyards on all those farms. The farms would, give out, would rent their property, and you'd have a mile, two miles, all these auto parts and cars up there, and people would be up there scavenging them. And so they cleaned all that up. That's, so I think, and it makes a conservative point for me, that a lot of government programs, some government programs like EPA, they should be, that you should bring them in, and then you should sunset them. In other words, we got EPA, it's going to do this, this, and this, it's authorized to do this, and after 10 years, it's out of business. I think those, that's conservative policy. Trouble with EPA now, these things get bigger and ab- bigger than ever, and they produce less than ever, you know. As we just, something that Reagan used to tell the story about, you know, the, the Bureau of Indian Affairs, is there fewer and fewer Indians on the reservation? Bureau of Indian Affairs got bigger and bigger, and they said they found one guy at his desk one day, he was weeping like a baby, and they asked him what was wrong, and he said, my Indian died. You know, and that's the story Reagan told. But it does tell you about government, and I think in, in a, a small-c conservative sense, I think we could, we could use a, uh, an EPA. But I will say, let me tell you a story about Howard Baker, who just died. We, we, Nixon went in for him. We went in for him in 1966 and got, helped get him elected, you know, just when he started. He was a rookie senator, and he came down. The, they were devising the EPA, and he was in the meeting. And I heard him say, when, I said, you know, when we're finished with this thing, the only thing that's going to be able to move in the USA is a small pony. <laughs> but that's, but you know, it was a bad situation. Mm-hmm. Now, um, one of the things that I found particularly striking in the book mm-hmm. uh, w- was some of the parallels to today. You had a war-weary country, unpopular overseas adventures. Uh, you had unrest at a much broader scale on sure. the ground domestically. Mm-hmm. And then again, you had this political divide on the right, quote-unquote. Talk a little bit about the parallels between that time and today. Well, you know, I just finished a column and sent it off. Is it's is uh, is is Nixon's tri- is Nixon's triumph really relevant to Republicanism today? And you've touched on some of the points why I think it is. There's a lot of differences. It's a different country demographically, uh, socially and culturally. The revolution of the '60s has really taken hold and taken root, and it dominates the media, the academy, you know, arts, entertainment, and all the rest. But the similarities are the ones you mentioned. One is that we have a two-term president who has suddenly been perceived as 
unable to master the problems and the events of his time. Uh, his political philosophy is being seen as having failed. Uh, the people in the country, not, not only uh, the conservatives and the Republicans and the opposition, but now even some of the mainstream media are saying he's not up to the job, he doesn't have the answers. So you've got a president, a party, and a philosophy which people say are failing. And so the golden opportunity is there's only one alternative around. And if you turn to that, and like they turned to Nixon, it wasn't with wild enthusiasm back then to Richard Milhouse Nixon who'd been around a long time, but the country is turning toward the Republicans. And, uh, and if they can unify the, the whole group, Tea Party and everybody, and if they can come up with a, a credible program that people will perceive that it will work, and if Obama continues going down as he is, I think it opens up the possibility the Senate could be captured this year and the presidency in 2006. And that's one of the reasons I've argued against some folks who are pushing, you know, impeach him. I said, you know, we got, we're holding a full house here. You know, you don't throw part of that away to draw two more cards and go for four of a kind. And so don't go down the impeachment road because first you'll divide the party, you'll divide the country, you'll energize and galvanize the opposition. Uh, the folks, they're over there, they're loving this, they're all trying to impeach our president, we have to rise up and stand behind him. Just take the case we've got, which is a very powerful case, that these folks don't believe, don't belong running the government, the White House or the U.S. Senate, or do they? And just say, why do you think they, here's the case against them, okay? And you all agree with a lot of this. So I think we can win that main argument. So don't get distracted by, you know, doing something that I think uh, will prove uh, fruitless. And probably the left, if they had their druthers, would like, I imagine, the right to bring impeachment proceedings. Oh, sure, so it would sure, backfire. And... Sure, because all, all the, the my old friends at MSNBC had come alive. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, to that end, let's say the Republicans do take the Senate in 2014, and let's say they take the presidency in 2016, and I know that that president could be from among any of a number of people, and whoever looks like they're the favorite today, it'll be a different favorite in six months, right. different favorite after. My question is, do you can you foresee any scenario in which there isn't a de facto or outright amnesty on immigration? Sure. I think... Uh President of the United States would come in and say, uh, you know, the, the people talk about a problem of people living in the shadows. These Lots of these folks, they all broke in here, or they're here illegally and overstayed their visas. And no, we're not going to provide amnesty, but what we're going to do, we're going to secure the border. We're going to talk to the Mexican government and tell them to start securing their borders and stop this from happening across their country. We're going to talk to the Central Americans. Uh, we're going to start enforcing E-Verify, and some of these folks that are repeat offenders and hiring illegal aliens are going to find themselves with a lot stiffer fines and uh, maybe community more community service than they imagine, and just keep going at that. That's what we were. That's what Obama, Obama claimed he was doing, and they were saying people were going home, and that people weren't coming in up until we had this latest event, and so that's what I would do. And who's going to override it if I'm sitting in the White House? Mm-hmm. I mean, okay, La Raza says, you know, I don't like that. They don't like that guy in the White House. So what? So if you have all of the left, which is obviously going to be behind some kind of amnesty, mm -hmm. and you have the Chamber of Commerce pushing hard, and Republicans right. view the Chamber of Commerce as important for monetary reasons, I would imagine, mostly, right. 
Do you see – you don't see the Republicans caving ultimately? Well, I, I, could, I think the natural disposition of the Republican majority is to cave to amnesty and to cave to the Chamber of Commerce and the Business Roundtable and the Fortune 500 and all of that. And you would need a strong president to do that. Well, you know, take a look at Richard Nixon. Uh, they tried to break him on Vietnam. At five, we had 500,000 guys – Surrounding the, the the White House, you had the airborne troops. They didn't know it, sitting in the basement of the EOB, ready to go. And you know, Time Magazine was said it's time for Richard Nixon to respond to this. And and David Broder was writing about the breaking of the presidency. And all the magazines were saying, you know, the elites had all gone over to the revolution. And Nixon got up and said, I want that great silent majority to stand behind me. Sixty-eight percent did. He went soaring in the polls. And then Agnew went out uh, in a speech that I helped draft and, uh, and tore the hide off the uh, networks. And they were suddenly howling. <laughs> They've been laughing at Agnew. Now they said he's the greatest threat to the First Amendment in, in years, you know, this guy Agnew with his speeches. So you can do it. But there's no doubt it's going to take strong leadership and you're going to be pounded. Mm-hmm. But I think you have the country with you when you do something like that. You know, there's a rule in politics which is that, uh, you know, uh, uh, unity, unity does not precede action; it follows action. You know, I remember when we were on McLaughlin Group, we we're all saying, "What are you going to raid, invade Grenada? Are you crazy and everything?" And so Dutch invades Grenada, and the next week, everybody—that's <laughs> terrific, you know. Mm-hmm. And it's very true in politics, you know, that if you take a strong stand and you go out there and lead, people will follow. But you read uh, Douglas MacArthur's memoirs. Uh, what did he say? He said, "Military councils make cowards out of soldiers." You get them all around the table and say, you know, you guys think we should invade it in, Sean? I think we could have drown the whole invasion force and all the rest of it. Everybody start to all the negatives come out. Nah, no way. <laughs> but you get one guy in there, and he makes the call and, and takes the responsibility, and you can get things done. Mm-hmm. It's a great office, that presidency, I'll tell you. <laughs> Used properly. As President Obama can attest <laughs> at times, at least. Uh, and he gets to use his pen and phone yeah, to right, push sure. through his policies. Now, one thing that you alluded to earlier was the sort of monolithic left taking over the media, academia, all of the other primary cultural institutions. And you've spoken to all of the negative trends in the culture, which manifest themselves in a lot of the problems that we see today, yeah. in addition to the decline in faith among a percentage of the country, at least. Sure. So, question is there still a silent majority today, or was the second election of President Obama, as I think of it, sort of proof that it's not a center-right country, it's actually a center-left country, if you can even say center-left? Well, again, this is I, I alluded to this in today's column. I said one of the changes from the Nixon era is that you did have a social, cultural, uh, moral majority in uh, the country, which was standing up against riots, against crime, against the drug revolution, the sexual revolution, uh, all of that, uh, and was really against it. And frankly, was against it uh, for a long, t- for a very long time. And when I gave my cultural war speech, as they call it now, at the Houston Convention, uh, Irving Kristol wrote in the Wall Street Journal that uh, I regret to inform my friend Pat Buchanan that the cultural war is over. We lost. Uh, I think there's no doubt about it. Who was I talking to? I was talking to Sean Hannity uh, on the air. And I said, you know, there's no question now that the, the cultural revolution has become the cultural establishment in America now. 
I mean, the, the views and values, and they were on the campuses and, uh, and were in the media and everywhere. They are, they are probably predominant. They certainly are at least half of the country, and they're predominant in the cultural institutions. And culture, I mean, and, and, and politics is downstream from culture. And so there's no question about that, that to rely on those now which were winning cards up until not so long ago in politics, uh, they're, they're not necessarily winning cards, and certainly not in every state, and certainly not in a lot of big states, New York, California, at all. So I think it's a fair point. And that's one of the things that makes it impossible to do the 49-state thing that we did for Nixon and Agnew, if you can imagine it. And, and of course, then Reagan got 44 states and then 49 states against Carter for 44. And uh, you can't do that today and one of the reasons is what you mentioned is that the uh, the excuse me the other side has made uh, extraordinary inroads into the culture and uh, and probably is predominant it certainly is predominant take a look at what's on television you know take a look at what's going on in the public schools these guys would be arrested for what's going on in some of these public schools mm-hmm. um, one of the points of the book that I found particularly interesting was your discussion of the Middle East back then. Right. What are the differences between the dynamics in the Middle East back then and the Middle East today? Well, I was in, in Israel with Nixon uh, immediately after the Six-Day War. We had been in Morocco when the war started, and uh, we were going to go to all those Arab countries and go to Israel, and uh, uh, the Arab countries started canceling our visit, and then they started canceling breaking relations, so we cleared out of Morocco and went to Paris. But we got around to Israel at the end of the uh, Six-Day War and saw Ben-Gurion and... Uh, and Diane and Rabin, uh, Israel was extraordinarily popular, extraordinarily popular in the United States at the end of that war. I mean, which, oh, it was the sensation of the uh, world. It was on the cover of Economist magazine. They had the pyramid, I think, with the eye patch on it, or the Sphinx with the eye patch on it, and uh, and and it was it was really seen to be a question of it ha- had been. It was perceived to have been a question of life or death for Israel, and everybody was behind Israel, and there was tremendous support for Israel in the war and diminishing support for Vietnam, where we had 400,000 guys. And so I think in that period, Nixon, it was a period of, of military conflict and possible war, and Nixon stepped forward and rescued Israel in the Yom Kippur War when Diane had been caught sleeping, as had Golda Meir. It cost her her premiership and with that airlift. So, and that was a battle, it was seen, Israel was fighting for survival against Egypt and Syria. What you have now is a different conflict, and it's the Palestinian conflict with the Israelis. And as you know from watching this disinvestment movement and the rest of it, there's a growing perception that the Palestinians are the victims here, their land's being taken from them, they're being persecuted, and all the rest of it. So you don't have the same moral clarity, I think, that existed then. Secondly, of course, you've had this, uh, this Arab Spring with the, uh, the, the turmoil, and you've had the American interventions in there and the American weariness with any more of these fights and wars uh, in the Middle East. And I think there's a real movement, a real feeling in the United States that Obama has tapped into that, uh, that better off if we extricate ourselves from all these wars and not send any more Americans to fight and die in what he calls somebody else's civil war. I'll tell you what's affecting it. I mean, I can't cut on the television without looking at these pictures of these these kids. You know, they got their legs and arms blown off, and they're in hospitals, and they're wounded warrior things. And and Americans say, you know, we sent all those guys over there to fight in Afghanistan and Iraq, 
That guy's left him with an army that didn't defend Mosul. We're going to go send an army over and take it back for him when they wouldn't defend it? And then they, you know, they, I, was, I was just at another program, and they asked about the, uh, you know, the Islamic State, uh, the Caliphate. You know, I said, you know, the Gulf Arabs have been aiding these characters in Syria. The Turks, the Turks have been letting them in there, and now they got their little caliphate, and we're supposed to go clean it out? Why don't the Turks go clean it out? You know, it's, I mean, if we had a caliphate in Mexico, I think we could handle it. And they got a big army, and they're doing nothing about it. So it's your problem first and foremost, fellas, over there, and we're not going to do it for you. And that's just what I would say. Mm-hmm. So in your view, uh, and, and I agree, right. overseas adventurism, unless it's narrowly within the national interest and you have to have an exit strategy and there has to be a – we have to define what winning is in the first place. And right. I imagine you'd probably agree that the rules of engagement that are put on the troops are prohibitive today right. and would have never stood in Nixon's day or right. Reagan's day. Yeah, just what, what would your – Cut well, the B-52s loose. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, well, a couple of questions about that. What would your strategy be vis-a-vis the Middle East today? Uh, and, and number two is – with respect to the Obama strategy, and some people would say lack of strategy, I actually think it is a strategy. I think you once referenced the Cloward Piven strategy as regards to the southern border. Mm-hmm. Do you think that Obama's foreign policy is sort of a Cloward Piven foreign policy where we basically supported the destabilization of these authoritarian regimes that kept order in that region, mm-hmm. and he supported the movements which toppled them and created this crisis throughout Arabia? Uh- yeah, I think he did. I think he's naturally on the side of the overthrow of autocrats. He's the precise opposite, I think, of uh, Gene Kirkpatrick, who talked about dictatorships and double standards. And there, but there's not only them. There's a number of the you know the neoconservatives and others, uh, and even some of the liberals. You know, my old friend, you know, Chris Matthews. They're very excited about what's going to happen when the you know Mubarak goes under. You know, and these guys. I mean, they're authoritarians, and it's very unpleasant. They're dictatorial, but they're sitting on top of all these forces. And when you take the top off the box, you know, it's not usually the liberal Adelaide Stevenson Democrats who wind up in power. I mean, they're very tough forces in the Middle East. In any government you have that's democratic, I mean, by free elected, an Islamist faction is either going to be a powerful minority on the verge of power, or it's going to be in power. And that's because the culture of that is based on rooted in the religion, and it's very deep, and it's very uncompromising, and that's what you're going to wind up with. But I think, you know, it's uh, it's sort of like the period, I think America's, if you had a comparable period, take what happened in the British Empire, when, you know, they, of course, after World War II, I've written about the folly of getting into that thing, uh, for the Brits, but, you know, when they were so weakened and depleted and down and bankrupt, so they said, we can't maintain the empire. They get out of India, and they got a horrendous war going on, ethnic slaughter and tra- population transfers. And in the Middle East, you've got the Israeli-Arab War, and all of these places blew up, and then they got the autocrats on top of them. And, and we're going through, I think we're going through a long period here where I don't see the value of an investment in blood and, and wealth to protect particular regimes in the region. And I know I, I, they say I was, on, I, I was against the first Gulf War because I said if we get in this thing, it's going to be the first Arab-American War. It's not going to be the last. 
And so we go in there and we knock over, you know, make it weak in Iraq, and we put the Emir back on his throne, which is a wonderful thing. And uh, and then we got to and then we got to contain Iraq and Iran both, and they're containing each other. So I think in a lot of cases this wasn't thought through. But I do agree. I think Obama's natural disposition is uh, is I think there's in Obama there is a there one foot of his is in the anti-colonial anti-Western camp. It's undeniable. I mean, when he took, uh, I mean, I wouldn't have had the bust of Winston Churchill in the Oval <laughs> Office, but he took it out a little too quickly. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things that was picked up was the, your passages in here about the Southern strategy, mm-hmm. quote unquote. <clears throat> Make your best argument against the left who argue that Nixon was racist and that the Southern strategy was about exploiting racist bloater, uh, voter blocks in the South to peel off Wallace voters. Well, the uh, Richard Nixon voted, got a letter from Martin Luther King, private letter, thanking him for support of the Voting Rights Act of 57, supported the Voting Rights Act of 60, of 64, of 65, and 68, supported every single one. He had a black capitalism program, an office of uh, minority business empire created that. He increased the number of black employees and all the rest of it in the, in the federal government. Uh, he desegregated the southern schools. from They went from 10% desegregated to 70% under Nixon. Uh, he believed in civil rights. Uh, but did we want all 11 states of the Confederacy? You bet. And if it was moral for Woodrow Wilson to win all 11 states of the Confederacy and then put birth of a nation on in the White House and resegregate the federal government and FDR to put a Klansman on the Supreme Court. We didn't do that. And then to put old uh, Jimmy Burns up there who had led the battle for the, for the, uh, uh, to kill the anti-lynching law. <laughs> they made him Secretary of State first in line. These people, there was collusion between the Northern liberals and the Southern segregationists, Adelaide Stevenson carried the entire Deep South by putting John Sparkman on his ticket, who was a signer of the Dixie Manifesto. And did you know that Bull Connor was the Democratic National Committee man from Alabama? So they've been in bed with all these guys. And so we went south, and what we said is, look, we are for civil rights, that's it, and we're for desegregation. And we know you don't like us and or that say doing this or saying this, but that's where we are. Now, that's where we're going to stand, but I'll tell you where we do agree with you. We agree with you on Vietnam. We agree with you on liberals. We agree with you on morality and patriotism and all these issues. And we want to bring you into camp. And we'd like to win this state, but we are pro-civil right, civil rights bills, and we're not going to change them. And so what happened was, once the civil rights thing and segregation was off the table, there was no more segregation, why would the South stay with Adelaide Stevenson and all the northern liberals? And they were, they were bashing them anyhow. And so we walked a whole bunch of them, all of them, right into the camp. And they say, why didn't you get the African-American vote in the South? Well, if African-American vote in the, in the North went with FDR after the New Deal. And in the South, Lyndon Johnson was for civil rights. Barry Goldwater wasn't. It was a tough vote to get. If we could have gotten all of them, we would have gotten them. My job, if you read those memos, it's about, look, we're, you can hunt where the ducks are, as Barry Goldwater said. And that's where they were. But I think, what did we, you take a look at our policies in the South. Look at the South now. The South went Republican when it was desegregated. Strom Thurmond, for his first 30 years in politics, was with them. They were hard years for Strom. And when desegregation came and he was hiring black employees, uh, Strom came with us. 
And that's exactly what happened. Including Tim Scott, the current senator. Of Tim Scott, Carolina. the current senator, sure. Now, <clears throat> related to that, you write in here that you subsequently became friends with George Wallace. How did that relationship come about? Wallace was reading my columns, which is just great stuff in those days. <laughs> when he, it was after he was shot. And he was still governor, though. And he was reading my columns, and the he had a friend who was at Troy State University, uh, who was head of it, Paul Adams. And Dr. Adams called me up and said, we've named uh, Pat Buchanan chair of journalism down here. And they gave me a nice fee. It was about half of 1% of what Hillary gets <laughs> to come down, to come down once every six months and lecture to the students on journalism. And, uh, and so I, Shelley and I took my wife down. And when I would arrive at the airport, the state troopers were there. And they said, the governor, governor wants to talk to you. And so I would go visit the governor and talk to him in his office. And he'd been severely wounded. And I came to like him, and I talked to him about the civil rights days and the old days of campaigning. And he liked to reminisce about that. And I came to really like the guy. And uh, I, I don't to see, and I'm glad we didn't use, I didn't use, or Nixon didn't call him a racist, and I was urging Nixon not to, partly for tactical reasons in those days, but because I didn't think that's, you, what good does that do? And if eventually you want his guys to come over to you, you don't call their guy a lot of names. So uh, I got to know him and, and like him. And, uh, and, uh, and I would go down there, and I went down there for a number of times. And then in 1996, when I was running, uh, and Wallace issues a statement saying, Dole ought to pick Buchanan for vice president. <laughs> <laughs> so, but he, to me, some of these figures, they're figures of history. And uh, you find out a lot of people on the other side, after the battles are over, are not really as bad as you said they were. Now, you mentioned a, a name which is basically a curse in these offices, uh, Woodrow Wilson. Huh? Why did Richard Nixon so romanticize Woodrow Wilson? I think it was, uh, as I point out, Herman Kahn once told me that, uh, that you can change someone's whole orientation for life only at two periods of time, mainly from the time they're three till they're seven, and from the time they're in college. You know, a lot of guys go to college. Uh, Hillary Clinton is a Goldwater girl, and she comes out, no Goldwater girl. And and for me, as I tell folks, that, you know, I'm from three to seven years old was World War II. So you got all this flowing in on you about the Japanese and everything and World War II. And, and so that makes a certain person and, and, and creates you. And look at what... So I looked at Nixon. Nixon, born in 1913, he turned... He was about three, four years old when Wilson started to take us into war and he takes us to war and it's a great victory and he goes over the Prince of Peace coming to Paris and he just, they welcomed him in the whole world and then he comes home and he's battling for the League of Nations and and I think that whole idea uh, of, 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 what, of Wilson, what he attempted to do and the tragic figure with a stroke and dying and having failed but having tried gallantly and, you know, what that line to fail in a, better to fail in a cause that will one day triumph than to succeed in a cause that will one day fail, that's attached to Wilson. I think it was that, that whole romantic idea that you could change the world. Read Nixon's inaugural. I mean, I just saw a portion of it. They showed it to me on Steve Maltzberg's show, you know. And, it, and it's, uh, it's utopian. You know, it's, we're, we're going to have peace and all, you know. No, you know, no, we're not, you know. And, and, but that affected Nixon. And also, you know, Nixon was not a conservative. You got to realize he grew up in the New Deal, was very poor. 
they're very poor. He's got two of his brothers dying, you know, when they're young people, and they're going through very harsh times. And I'm sure he didn't look on FDR as down the road to socialism. And his wife Pat is out there now, you know, Al Smith uh, devotee. And so I think that's where he came from, basically. But he never got over the Wilson, uh, the Wilson thing. And he, I think he put his his picture in the cabinet room. And Reagan put in the Coolidge, you know. <laughs> so, it's kind of interesting if you think about that parallel tracks that Reagan also started out probably ideologically similar well, he and sympathetic. For FDR, I think about four, four times. <laughs> yeah, but then sure. he he went one way and Nixon went the other. Well, you know, well Nixon Nixon never gave up. You know, Nixon moved. I would say probably from his younger days, he called himself I think a, a progressive conservative and and stuff. But Nixon. Uh, you know, Nixon, uh, I, he was never an ideological conservative. The movement of real, I mean, the, the Republican Party was sort of natural, small-c conservative. Taft, they didn't want to get involved in NATO and the rest of it. But Nixon was, a, you know, a coal warrior. He was like Jack Kennedy. He was post-Cold War. He was a very modern man in the 40s and 50s. And, uh, but th- he did not have that reflexive hostility to government that you see on the part of so many... Uh, very hard conservatives, and certainly Tea Party folks and others. Uh, he just didn't have it. You know, he was, you know, with his, you mentioned some idea. He said, you know, well, let's see if we can work something out here, you know. I mean, he wasn't a massive embrace of it, but he would listen and hear it out. Mm-hmm. With respect to 2016, as I see it, similar to this time period, although I think the establishment, if anything, might be stronger today than back then. You tell me if I'm wrong, but it seems as if the establishment was sort of crumbling at this time. Mm-hmm. And well, this is a different, the establishment today is uh, what you call the establishment is different, uh, and it is stronger politically. Because you, know, you can take a look at the brat race, but where are the others? You know, but the establishment today uh, uh, really uh, uh, there any amnesty, there's not going to be any amnesty because of brat, and the establishment's gone with the program. You know, and there's a establishment won't deliver Obama anything. So they are responsive. They might Tea Party not be, might not be electing people, but they're certainly influencing policy here. I mean, if there's gridlock in D.C., those are the fellows who are pull, pushing for it and getting it. And they're not. I mean, you can't compare. I think Mitch McConnell, if he's establishment, to, to Nelson Rockefeller and Tom Dewey. I mean, these guys sat up here and and they dictated the nominee. They're going to end up Philadelphia and uh, put Wendell Wilkie, some guy from Wall Street and stick him on the Republican ticket as candidate in 1940. And, you know, and uh, Dewey, what did Dirksen say in the 752 convention, you know? He got up there and pointed to Dewey, he said, twice, we have followed you down, we have taken your advice and followed you down the road to defeat, we will not follow you a third time. And so Dewey's smiling, they get Eisenhower twice, you know, and Taft gets beaten. And, uh, but Nixon was the first, Nixon was not the establishment choice in 1960. Establishment would have loved Rocky, mm-hmm. and uh, and certainly in uh, and Goldwater, that's when they killed the establishment. The Republican establishment was broken in the early '60s, and the liberal establishment was broken by the war in Vietnam. It never recovered. It had the ability to kill Nixon. It had all the media and all the garbage up there, the investigators and the special prosecutors, and all these guys all working together could bring something down, but they couldn't build anything, and they couldn't run it anymore. And nobody trusted them anymore. And they really were. And uh, Vietnam was the wheel on which the liberal establishment was broken. And, of course, that revolution came a little later than the 
Yaf, conservative, and a, a National Review Revolution that nominated Goldwater in 64. But that's really what came roaring through in 65, 66, 67, 68, and beyond. And they captured the culture. And applying that, applying those lessons to today, if in 2016 you have today's establishment coalescing behind a candidate, which they seemingly always do right. and do effectively, whether it's Jeb Bush or I, I doubt it will be, but maybe Chris Christie, or maybe they get behind Rubio because they say, well, he'll appeal to conservatives, but he's also kind of one of us too. And then you have on the other side, as I see it, a Rand Paul and a Ted Cruz. Do you see a situation where the establishment encourages more and more conservative candidates to split the vote with each other, and then the establishment rides in and wins well, the Well, you can have Ben Carson in there, too, and you could have Santorum in there. I don't know about Huckabee, but I can see those groups all uh, who are not established, they're not establishment people, all of them taking parts of the Republican constituency and the Republican establishment basically clearing the field for one early on and having that one roll through and beat all the others. Uh, I can see that happening, sure. Uh, and there's a po- I wonder if there's a possible, Mitt Romney's got to be taking a look at this. I mean, if I, I'll tell you, I wouldn't, I wouldn't hesitate if I looked around and saw the highest guy had 15% and <laughs> say, look, you know, this is, this is not the Kentucky Derby. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, but I think you're correct. I think that could happen. I think it could happen. And, uh, but see, this is, uh, well, you know, in, well, Nixon, of course, in, it's Nixon in 68. They didn't have that many, but you had a really powerful Reagan out on the coast, which was a constant fear of mine that he gets in, not that he could beat us in the primaries, because it was too early for him to get in, but that those guys could stampede over there and we'd lose this whole base, and you get Romney Rockefeller. Uh, I don't know how they would, Rockefeller, Reagan, they were trying to put that together, but I didn't see those two getting together. I don't think Barry Goldwater would have approved that. (laughs) (laughs) Last last question. Sure. With respect to the goings-on in Israel and some comments that you've made in the past, I guess a question is, do you think that there can be any sort of lasting peace uh, when Israel is surrounded by its enemies? I think you'd agree. All of the countries in the region are not friendly to it. You talk about even-handedness between, in the book I'm right. quoting, our Arab friends and our Israeli friends. There was a, I was in the context of the Cold War. Yeah, in the context of the Cold War. Today, is Israel... Should Israel not be our number one ally in that region? And what is in our national interest with respect to Israel? Well, you've got to define ally. I mean, we went to war against Iraq and Desert, I mean, uh, Desert Storm. No, the first war, Gulf War. Gulf War, yep. And, uh, and Israel didn't go to war with us. I mean, that lies. I mean, we asked Israel to stay out when we got the Arabs together. And uh, we Syrians sent 4,000 troops. So, it's, you know, we're not a formal ally of Israel, but there's no doubt the American people want the United States to stand squarely and forthrightly behind Israel as a friendly nation, as a democratic nation, as a nation to which we're as close as almost any nation on earth, maybe even closer, and like the Brits and the rest of it. And that's a reality in American politics. But in terms of, of the situation now, I fear that the... The last chance for real peace, and I, I came out for a Palestinian state after the first intifada. You said you got two peoples here, two religions, two languages. Two, they're different, and they should be two states, just like America came into being 
sometime after 1765 and 1775, suddenly this was more, it was gelding into a nation. And the Palestinians are a nation. And I think that the assassination of Rabin, whom I admired and knew, uh, and he was a man who could have made, just as Nixon went to China, who could have made peace with the Palestinians. And I don't know if the Palestinians were ready then, but I think he was. But their charters didn't recognize. Uh, they, you look, you're going to have to get by all, I mean, that stuff. Uh, and the question is whether they would accept a peace and do the things they needed to do. I think there was a possibility there, and I think there maybe was a possibility with Barack in 2000. I look at it, and it's, uh, I don't see how it's, uh, how it's resolved peacefully. And you look at this, there can be more bloodshed, more killing, more hatred, more of these kids are going to lose their parents, and they're going to grow up, put on their masks, and fire rockets, and, uh, and the rest of it. Uh, and so what is the solution over there? I mean, in, you know, demography is destiny. Can the infidels coexist with the non-infidels? In the Middle East? Yeah. I think the, uh, who do you mean by the infidels? Well, anyone that isn't Islamic. Uh, well, I think, yeah, look, at you take Iraq. I mean, whatever you say, I mean, uh, Saddam Hussein was a dictator, but he had a lot of girlfriends and he liked booze and statues, you know, he's very westernized in that sense. I mean, and, and, and yeah, they, and, and, uh, but look, if I were an Islamic leader and a secular leader, you know, I'd be down at the mosque every Friday you know, and because you got to recognize what is the fundamental culture and religion and faith, you got to identify with it, and you got to respect it and honor it, and let the people know know that. But you can do that without setting up a caliphate. And and the Turks were had. I thought early on Erdogan was doing a great job of it. You know, and he, I don't know what happened to him. You know, just he, he demanded uh, Assad go. I don't know why he did that. So. Uh, but am I a pessimist on the Middle East in the long run? Yeah. I mean, I think uh, in one of my books, I tell the story. My wife and I were, we were out in uh, San Clemente, and Rabin came to town. He was prime minister. He calls the old man. The old man was an ex-president, you know. And again, we were, said, should we leave the room? And he says, no. And he's talking, you know, I think, you know, this, you ought to do this, this. And Rabin's listening to all this. And so when they hung up the phone, and Shelley said, uh, what are the prospects for Israel? And he says, in the long run? She says yes, and he went. And the I'm name sure of the book. Demography. Demography. <laughs> the name of the book is "The Greatest Comeback." The author is Pat Buchanan. Thanks, Pat. Thank you.